You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Y'all, I am so excited to be here with y'all. My name is Catherine. I am the summer intern here, and I was here last summer and just fell completely in love with this church and you people. So I am so grateful that y'all gave me the chance to be back here for part two. I'm so glad to be here. Now, um, In the time between when I was your intern last summer and today, I had my first year of seminary at Asbury Theological Seminary. And I have to tell y'all, honestly, I have loved it. Um, I have been such, just, the more I have learned, the more I've wanted to learn, really. And I have felt the same exact way about this Ezra series, too. The more I learn, the more I want to learn. But I have to be honest and tell y'all that I didn't originally feel that way about Ezra. Honestly, before seminary, I don't think I knew there was an Ezra. But when Carolyn told me that this is what we were going to be preaching on this summer, I looked at it and thought, there's no way. And then I looked at the passage that I have to, I mean, get to preach on this morning and thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to preach a sermon on this. Nevertheless... We're going to look at it anyways and see that the temple wasn't the only thing that's been broken. There's a lot more that needs to be rebuilt. So turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. As we say here every week, the best way to engage the message is with a Bible, something to write with, and something to write on. So while you're finding um, Ezra chapter 4, I'll also tell you, you remember that, that video we watched a few weeks ago with Tim Mackey, The Bible Project? He calls this a really strange story. So this really strange story, Ezra chapter 4, um, it's a fun one. If you remember last week in chapter 3, the Israelites had rebuilt the altar, celebrated, and began to lay down the foundation for a new temple. This would be their place of prayer and worship where the people of God could encounter the presence of God. So that's where we pick up in Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, You may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents against them to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. So, already I have lots of questions, and I'm guessing that y'all do too. First, who are these enemies of Benjamin and Judah? Well, here's what I've learned. In verse 2, these people say they worshiped the God of Israel and were brought to the land by King Esarhaddon of Assyria. Now, there's debate. 
But a lot of people think that this verse is actually a clue. And it points back to 2 Kings 17, when Samaria fell to Assyria, as in these people are Samaritans. Some Bible translations will even just straight up call them Samaritans in parentheses or a footnote. And the Samaritans shared a family history and some lineage with the Jews. They worshiped the same God as the Jews, believed a lot of the same scriptures, and even called themselves the children of Israel. So then my next question is, why are they called enemies here in verse 1? It's clear the relationship is broken, but it's not clear how or when that happened. Some think the Jews saw the Samaritans as enemies because they claimed to worship God, but were too influenced by the culture. They had been incorporating other religions into theirs. So yes, they worshiped the God of Israel, but he wasn't the only one they worshiped. Or maybe there were some political conflicts between the two groups. It's hard to tell because writings between both groups were often biased and untrustworthy. Sounds crazy, right? I'm so grateful that we, as modern, advanced humans, never have to deal with something like misinformation <laughs> and bias. I mean, all we have to do is get on Facebook or cable news to find out exactly who is right and who is evil. <laughs> but unfortunately for historians, the truth hasn't always been this simple. It's also possible that Ezra 4 is where the conflict between the Israelites and the Samaritans really began. So, maybe, they're only called enemies here in verse 1 because the rest of this chapter is about how they became that way. To make things even more confusing, you're welcome. It's not very clear why these enemies even offered to help. Maybe it was a trick. They were planning on sabotaging the Israelites all along. Or maybe these enemies actually wanted to be good neighbors. After all, they both worship the God of Israel, so shouldn't they be able to at least be kind to each other? It'd be a shame for people who say they worship the same God to treat each other as enemies. Again, I'm so glad that we never do that to each other. <laughs> but unlike us, in the absence of knowing their enemies' motivations for sure, the leaders of the Jews apparently assume the worst. They completely reject the Samaritans' help. And you know what they say happens when you assume. You make a bad situation worse. <laughs> I don't know what y'all were thinking. So, just to recap, I think I know who the enemies were, probably Samaritans, but I don't know why they offered to help. I don't know whether or not the leaders of the Jews made the right assumption or the right decision about how to respond. They could have even made the right decision for the wrong reasons. Some commentaries I read thought the Jewish leaders were maybe twisting words to try to justify their actions. So, surprise, surprise, there's even disagreement on this passage about disagreement. And I promise they're teaching me things in seminary but some conflicts just aren't as simple as we wish they'd be. Right and wrong, black and white, good and evil. Simple is easy and safe. Well, it feels like safety, but it comes out of fear. We think that if we can pinpoint the enemy, then we can protect ourselves from being harmed or like, strike first before it happens. And we've fallen, humans are so good at making enemies out of our neighbors. 
We'll take people and quickly label them as other. We find the differences and focus on the damages. We don't like mess and confusion, so we try to clear it up by identifying an us and a them. We refuse to even try to see things from the other side. We don't want to see our part in the problem, so we see the us as all right and them as all wrong. Tribalism, mob mentality, groupthink, echo chambers, even families have their black sheep. It's all an attempt to find security through our certainty and certainty through our community. Got it. Well, as I've got an example for you. Here's an example <laughs> of, of two real headlines I have read. First one, why do Democrats hate children? <laughs> and second one, proof Republicans actually hate children. <laughs> now, not everyone is made to volunteer for Vacation Bible School, but I'm going to guess that most people don't actually hate children. But we do this thing where we will make huge assumptions about people's morality, their morality, based on a disagreement. So that's why things like family dinner conversations or commenting on a Facebook post turn into personal attacks. We've all got stories like this. And even if we avoid debating about hot topics like politics and religion because we don't like conflict, we still all have a story about how a disagreement became a broken relationship. Sometimes, all it takes is a misunderstanding. When someone hurts us, we're pretty quick to assume the worst of them, disregard any good in them or fault of my own. My motives are totally pure. Their motives are totally corrupt. My mistakes are by accident. Their mistakes are a sign of bad character. I feel justified. They should feel ashamed. So then fear hardens into anger, and anger breaks down trust. And that kind of mentality can spread into every relationship. We distrust people. We distrust God. We even distrust ourselves. Michael Kofed describes trust as like a garden. Gardeners plant the bulbs months in advance with hope that the fragile flower will grow, thrive, and bloom. Usually, the hope and the work all come together and result in a single beautiful blossom. However, in a single moment, a lawnmower, a stray baseball, or a hungry deer can destroy the entire project. Similarly, trust must be painstakingly cultivated, but is easily destroyed. Destroyed plans and destroyed trust. That's the situation the Jews find themselves in after Ezra 4. If the Samaritans weren't already enemies with the Jews before this conflict, they certainly are by the end of it. Whatever relationship they had before is broken. In verse 4, these local residents go from offering help to working for sabotage. And maybe that was their plan all along, or maybe that was just their revenge for rejection, we already know that I don't know their original motivations. But it doesn't actually make a difference in the end. Either way, this one conflict 
is enough to stop the progress of God's people for over a decade. One conflict. It's not a very hopeful passage, but for me, it's been a pretty convicting one. And it brings up good questions. So maybe some of these would be worth writing down for y'all too. They'll be on the screen. Am I making unnecessary enemies? Am I contributing to unnecessary conflict? Do I have more assumptions than conversations? Do I miss any opportunities for community out of fear? Do I choose rejection and retaliation, or do I love my neighbors as I love myself? I can't believe I once thought Ezra 4 had nothing to preach on. Next, verses 6 to 23, flash forward years into the future to let us know that decades later, this conflict was still going on. It's like this collective grudge that gets passed down from generation to generation. Both sides seem to nurture hostility and coddle resentment. And as the temple walls finally do go up, so do these walls of bitterness. And no one fully agrees exactly when it started or why or who's to blame. That sound familiar to y'all too? Clearly, there's this huge divide between the Israelites and the Samaritans that lasts for centuries. Now here's where reading this chapter became really interesting to me. Even while the Jews and their enemies claim to follow God, we don't actually see or hear from God at all in Ezra 4. So it made me wonder, while people are busy rejecting and retaliating, what is God up to? Where is he in all of this chaos and division? It kind of reminds me of like when you've got two kids who are fighting back and forth saying, he started it, no, she started it, until finally the authority figure walks into the room and says, I don't care who started it, I'm here to finish it. Well, finally, 500 years after the fighting in Ezra 4 takes place, God finally walks into the room. In the gospel accounts of the New Testament, we can see and hear from God the Son on almost every page. So turn with me to whatever page in your Bible gets you to the book of John, chapter 4. In John 4, we see that the temple is still standing, but the broken relationship between the Jews and Samaritans has yet to be rebuilt. They're clearly still enemies fighting at worst and avoiding each other at best. Yet, in John 4, verse 7, Jesus strikes up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. She's drawing water from a well in the middle of the day when it was probably the hottest. And that's a weird time of day for that choice of errand. It'd be kind of like going to the grocery store in the middle of a Tuesday, like a Tuesday morning. It's just really weird unless you're trying to avoid people. So you can kind of make that assumption based on her interesting choice. It's pretty likely that in addition to conflict with the Jews, this Samaritan woman probably also has a lot of broken relationships in her own community. 
so she's an outcast. Yet, Jesus approaches her to ask for help in getting some water. She seems surprised and confused by such an act. And verse 9 reads, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. How could he? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Yet, Jesus chooses to anyway. So while people choose division, Jesus chooses relationships. Can y'all see with me how huge this is? After several centuries of separation, Jesus crosses this great divide and an even greater reversal of the conflict that we read about earlier. Listen to the difference. In Ezra 4, the people of God reject help from the Samaritans. But here, in John 4, God himself asks a Samaritan for help. This isn't an accident. This isn't an accident. Jesus turned water into wine, so I'm pretty sure he could have figured out how to get a drink of water by himself. <laughs> Talking with the Samaritan woman was an intentional choice. And through their conversation, Jesus reveals himself to her as the Messiah, as in the one both Jews and Samaritans believed would come to make everything right. So this moment with the woman at the well, it's a huge deal. In John's gospel, it actually makes her the very first person to know Jesus's true identity. Out of all kinds of people, God chooses this woman, this outcast Samaritan woman to reveal the most important news in the world too. And that revelation sends her immediately back into her community, to the people it seems like she was avoiding, so that verses 39 to 41 say, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. How unimaginable would this scene have been to the Jews in Ezra 4? How stunning is the result of it? Centuries after the Samaritans tried to stop the rebuilding of God's temple, their descendants are some of the first people ever to say of Jesus in verse 42, we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Again, hear the difference our savior makes. In Ezra 4, the people of God reject the Samaritans. So the Samaritans retaliate against the people of God. But in John 4, the son of God reaches out to a Samaritan so that many Samaritans become the people of God. So that the ones who stopped the building of the temple can now join God 
in building the kingdom so that even the enemies of the people of God can know Jesus as Savior. This is proof. This is proof that no relationship is too damaged. No person is too broken to be made whole through Jesus. So, of all the questions I get out of Ezra 4, the most important one is this. How does God treat his enemies? How does God treat his enemies? He certainly has them, right? No one knows what it's like to be rejected and retaliated against more than God, more than Jesus. He's actually the only one who knows what it's always like to really be good and right and pure. And yet, Romans 5.10 says that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That is how God treats his enemies. Through Jesus, God restores the most important relationship that we break down with sin, our relationship with him. And Jesus taught that part of having a relationship with God is reflecting his character in our relationship with others. And we don't have to guess what that looks like. It looks like a Jew associating with a Samaritan. It looks like God swaddled in a manger, in Christ, crucified on a cross, and everything he taught about in between. In Matthew 5, verses 44 to 45, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In Luke 6, 27, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So, I don't know for sure how God wanted his people to respond to their enemies in Ezra 4. But we do know the character that the people of God should have when we do. Loving our enemies isn't easy. The fear and frustration that come with broken relationships are there for a reason. But as hard as it is, we can't grab onto God while still holding on to unforgiveness. I think Pastor Carolyn knew that when she gave me my hardest job last summer. Even harder than helping out with Vacation Bible School. I had been meeting with Carolyn for um, Healing Prayer, which is where you pray through old wounds and hard memories. And I'd had a real moment of breakthrough, like transformative, honestly. Uh, But there was still this pain there that affected my relationship with God and others. And I think what I wanted was for God to miraculously and instantaneously just, like, fix all of my feelings. Instead, Carolyn encouraged me to pray for a person that had hurt me, and only for them. Not that God would fix them for me, 
or change them into what I wish they could be for me. Just that God would bless them. 20 minutes a day, two weeks. That was my goal. And it felt terrible. In prayer, I had to come face to face with how deep that wound actually was, how much had been broken. And I found out that praying for God to bless your enemies just hurts. When the two weeks were done, so was I. I mean, I, I kept praying for them, but only, like, kind of. The prayer just got shorter and shorter, and maybe y'all have prayed this kind of prayer before. Lord, please bless this person. Draw them to you. Amen. Praying for my enemies? Check. Then came the Asbury outpouring. And what began with a dozen Asbury University students praying together after a regular chapel service turned into what people have called a move of God. Over 50,000 people gathered in my tiny town of Wilmore, Kentucky over the course of two weeks for prayer, worship, and to just be in the presence of God. The first morning, though, before we ever knew that it would one day be called the Asbury Outpouring, the first morning, our seminary held our regular chapel service. We didn't know what to expect, but I was given another invitation into difficult prayer. It was a sort of altar call. If there's any prayer you're tired of praying or angry at God for not answering, let us pray with you. I normally am not one to go up for prayer. I think I usually figure, well, God can already hear me pray. Why do I have to bring someone else into it? <laughs> I mean, but that morning was kind of like, you know, when in Rome, when in revival. Like, I just knew I had to do it. And I couldn't leave that space without that prayer. So I, I asked this woman to pray for me and gave her just a one-sentence summary of the situation. Like, barely tip of the iceberg. Together, we went to the altar, and she began praying for me and for this person, and somewhere in there said, it's okay to grieve. Before I could do anything to stop myself from feeling, I just started crying, like right there, in the front of a room full of my classmates and peers and professors, but it just hit me. And I realized it had been easier to have a hard heart than a broken one. God broke something in me that day that needed to be broken. I had chosen to be angry or numb rather than deal with the sadness. But I think the Holy Spirit told that woman that I needed to. It's okay to grieve, she said again. And I could sense that it wasn't just this woman's hand on my shoulder, but God's. It wasn't only her arm around me, comforting me as I teared up at the altar, but my heavenly father's also. I think a lot of healing looks like forgiveness. And maybe sometimes it looks like grieving, too. Seconds after the woman left and I was still at the altar, 
a classmate came and knelt beside me. And the word he said he sensed from God was freedom. Freedom. And I felt it. In that moment, God didn't heal my broken relationship. But since then, he has been healing me. And that's just one story from the outpouring. There's no telling how many more people received real healing from the place of prayer at that altar, too. So each week, we have been adding an element to our space of worship, to to our altar. Tangible reminders of the work God is doing. This week, we're adding in healing oil. And y'all will have the same opportunity I was given to be able to come to the front with whatever is hurting you, whether it's a physical pain or an emotional wound, a broken relationship. Um, Julian and I will be on the sides whenever you're ready. Let us know how we can pray for you, and we will uh, anoint you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and contend for you in prayer. For whatever it is, don't be shy. The day I came to the altar, the speaker had preached from James chapter 5. And it's a pretty good passage for today, too, so I would also like to read it over y'all. So, I want to invite y'all to stand and receive the word of God. As y'all listen, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you might need prayer. Hear these words from James chapter 5. Verses 13 to 16 say, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So I want to invite you to respond in a way that is passionate and not passive. So maybe for you, that means that you're going to continue standing in worship, or you can come and kneel by the altar. That's what these sweet little pillows are for. But I'm sure that some of us do need healing. Maybe there's something that has hit you in this service today that you don't want to leave this place without getting that prayer. It would be an honor to pray with you. It would be an honor to anoint you with oil. So if you do have something you'd like to receive prayer for, don't leave here without that prayer. When you pray for healing, you don't have to pray alone. So come as you feel led and let someone pray with you. The altar is open and the Lord is with us. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, We'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.